Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Most people are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. It might just be one of the most famous stories in the world. I'm not saying it's the most famous, but certainly it is among them. It is, it is a story that most people are familiar with, even non-religious people if you say something about the prodigal, they kind of have an idea of where you're going with that. Many of you who are here this morning, coming to church for you is just a regular part of your routine. You can't imagine not going to church on Sunday. You can't, ima- you can't remember a time when you didn't go to church on Sunday. That's kind of my experience. My mom was taking me to church when I was, I was brand new to the world, and come on, we're going to church. And my earliest recollections of being in church is in Miss Christian's Sunday school class, yes, I had a Sunday school teacher named Mrs. Christian who professed to my mother one day, this child is going to go into ministry. And the cool thing about that is that Mrs. Christian, before she passed away, she was old when I was little, and she lived long enough to to hear me preach a sermon uh, at the first church I ever served. It was a wonderful day. But I remember remember going to church, and and ever since then, I've gone to church. There's never been a time where I didn't do that, and that's some of your experience. You know, you just, it's what you do. You come in here confident that God loves you. You understand grace and mercy and God's acceptance, and you, you get all that, but that isn't the case for everybody. It's possible that somebody has walked in here today very reluctantly, ashamed of what they've done, Feeling like, oh no, you know, walking in this building is going to put me on God's radar. I think some people think that if they don't go to church and they don't talk about God, they just kind of fall off God's radar. And that's where they want to be. They don't want God thinking about them. They don't want God looking at them. And they just think, well, if he's not thinking about me or looking at me, everything's going to be fine. And when they come to church, it's like, oh no, now I'm on God's radar. And the last feeling they have often is a feeling of belonging. They look around and they think, I'm not like these people. These people seem to have their act together. And I emphasize seem. Because we know, right? We don't have our act together. We're all f- trying to figure it out. But people who don't do this every week or who don't do this often, when they look at us, they look at us differently. And they think, one of the things they think is, I'm not like that. And I don't fit in. And I'm probably not even welcome if I go there. So if I just described you, can I just tell you, you do belong? We are glad you're here. And we, we don't, we're not looking down our nose at you. We don't have time for that. We got our own stuff that we're trying to figure out to, to be too worried about what, what your issues are, okay? We love you. We want to walk with you and help you get closer to Jesus. But we don't think we're any better than you, for sure. We know better. I am so desperate today for you to know the unfathomable, unrelenting, unpredictable love of God. I want us to do something this morning that may be a challenge for you, especially those of you that I described earlier that are so used to going to church all the time. And you've heard this story. When I said prodigal, you're like, yep, I've heard that. I don't have to listen to this. I want you to pretend today that you've never heard the story. I want you to try to listen to this today as if you've never heard heard it before. I got some feedback this morning, some people walking out that said, hey, you put a different twist on that today. And so I do. I think you're going to learn some things today that you probably have never considered when it comes to this story. We start with the title. The, t- the title of this is best known as the, the parable of the prodigal son. 
Last week we corrected that and we called it the parable of the prodigal sons. We learned last week that Jesus starts this story with two sons, not just one. There are two sons that this man has. The younger brother got lost abroad. The older brother got lost at home. The younger brother got lost in sin. The older brother got lost in judgment and judgmentalism. So the better name for the story is the the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. Last week we talked about the younger son. Next week we'll talk about the older son. Today I want to spend our time talking about the father. So here's my suggestion this morning and a warning. It's going to sound kind of weird. I'd like for us to call this message the parable of the prodigal father. You hear that and you think, (laughs) Brett, he didn't run off. Okay, he didn't go squander wealth. He didn't do any of the things that the son did. You can't really call him a prodigal. Well, here's what you need to know. That's not what prodigal means. I'll give you a definition of prodigal. It's a dictionary definition. Spending money and resources freely and recklessly. That's where we get our series title. Spending money and resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant is another term that you might get for prodigal. And with that definition, I would ask you a question. Who is more extravagant than the father in this story? No one. If you have a 20 to 24-year-old kid who's a bit irresponsible, who you kind of know he doesn't handle money well and you know he just doesn't make the best decisions, and you hand him a big wad of cash, you're pretty much assured that he's not going to save it, right? He's going to go out and blow it. He's gonna, by the, he's gonna, in about a week, he's going to blow through all that and then come back wanting more. If you've got an irresponsible kid like that that doesn't make good choices, you kind of know how the story's going to end. The, the father in this story is a farmer. He knows the value of hard work. He's, he, he gets, he's been working hard for decades. He understands business, and he understands transactions, and he knows the value of a dollar. He knows when he hands this son this money, he's going to go blow it. And still, he gives it to him. That is reckless. A second definition of prodigal is having or giving something on a lavish scale. You want to talk about the love of the father that's lavish? In fact, it's reckless, really. In this story, Jesus describes God as a recklessly lavish father and the pharisees are listening to the story and i think they kind of sat back with their arms crossed as they listened to this um, you know trying to soak in what jesus is talking about and i don't think it hit them real well i think that the, the thought they would have had is hey jesus you can't describe god like that that's not how god should be described in luke chapter 15 verse 20 we're going to pick up the story there let's begin there It says, but while he was still a long way off, talking about the father, the son's gone off and he's coming back home, while he was still a long way off, and I told you last week, this is one of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible, while he was still a long way off. That tells me that in this story that Jesus tells, Jesus is setting it up and he wants us to understand, now the father represents God, he wants us to understand that this, in my mind, I see this like he's standing at a fence row or at the gate of his house, and he's looking off at the horizon, and he's, you know, every day since his son has left, he's looking off in the horizon, waiting for his son to come home. He's got faith that he's going to come home, and he's going to be looking for him, and when he sees that little speck on the horizon, he's going to know that's his son. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now here's the question. Why did he run? See, here's what you got to know. Men in the Middle East, biblical men, did not run. It was beneath their dignity to run. Aristotle, the great philosopher, said, you can tell a man's station by his gait. Just, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't do that. If, if you're running, it meant that you were either the victim of a crime or you were a slave. You didn't, you didn't men who weren't victims and weren't slaves didn't run. It was beneath you. To, to, to carry yourself with the right gait, you, you were dignified, and the, the better you did that, the more important you looked and the more society respected you. And so these, these men didn't run. If you're a person of, no, of nobility, you don't run, you slow roll it, right? You, you've kind of got a style about it. You, you don't get in a hurry for anybody or anything. They wait for you. And the significance there is you're important. You'll wait for me. I'll get there when I get there, but I'm not going to hurry up for you. And so that's exactly what you would expect from this kind of father. My stomach is growling. Can you hear that? I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> that's what you'd expect from this father. You would expect him to slow roll it, right? He's not going to get in a hurry. He's, a, he's been around the block a few times. He knows what's what, but he runs. Why? Last week, I told you about Kizaza. It's a, it's a ceremony that we read about in the Talmud. It's prescribed for the person who does what this son did. Now, they didn't, you know, I told you last week, we don't have any record of anybody ever taking an inheritance before their father had died. So the, the, the Talmud prescription called Kizaza for the one who takes, after his father dies, he takes his inheritance and he goes off and he squanders the wealth like that. If that happened and the village got word that this son was now going to try to come back home, I told you, Kizaza was they take this pot and they fill it with putrid, rancid smelling things, awful smelling things. And they go to the outskirts of the village and they meet this person as they're trying to come back in and integrate themselves into the community again. And the, the, the message of the people is, you're not welcome here anymore. We don't want you in this. We don't want people who who have such little respect for their father and his legacy that you would do what you have done. You're not welcome here anymore. And then they would take this pot and they would throw it on the ground. It would break open and you would have this, this awful, awful smell that would just envelop everybody. And it was just inescapable. And it was this communication, you are not welcome in this village. I think at least one of the reasons why the father would have run in this particular story is he's trying to get to his son before the villagers get to his son. See, there's two, there's two messages that are going to make their way to the son. One of them is, you're not welcome here anymore. Turn and go someplace else, but you're not going to stay here. The other message is going to come from the father. You are welcome. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are accepted. And I think he runs to his son so that he can beat the villagers and he can communicate that message to his son, but also communicate that message to the rest of the villagers. He is accepted. He's loved. We are not going to turn him away. We are not going to do kizaza on him. Now, if you're here this morning and you, ex you uh, I, 
I think religious leaders, as they heard this, um, they're listening to Jesus tell this story. I think that they would say the way Jesus just described God is reckless. It's, it's lavish. And I don't think that religious people today would like to hear God described that way either. Uh, there are a lot of older brothers in the church. The, the, the older brother, the one that didn't do anything wrong, the one who looks down his nose at the one who ran off and squandered the wealth, the one who thinks he's better than. There are a lot of older brothers who object to, to just accepting people back willy-nilly. We just can't do that. they got to earn their way back. I've encountered those people in churches over the years. And um, you, you might be here and you might think, well, you know, if I have a problem, it's not that I've run off and it's not that I've squandered wealth or done anything like that. I've pretty much behaved myself. You may be here and if you're totally honest with yourself, you would say, if I have any problem, it's that I'm too much like the older brother. I have a tendency to think that I'm better than somebody else because I've gone to church my whole life. I have a tendency to think that I'm better than somebody else because I know all the verses and I can pray well and I, you know, I, have, I pray and, and, and I give and, and, and I go to church. But here's what I would tell you. I think God is way more interested in the prodigal coming back home than he is about your or my opinion of him. And if you find yourself identifying with the older brother, my guess would be that your opinion of God is no different than that of those religious leaders because they think, well, God is all about the rules. God, God's all about the law. God is just. God would say, I'm less interested in your opinion of me than I am a relationship with you. Now, God does have rules. God does have a law. God is just. I'm not suggesting that we just ignore those things. What I'm saying is those obedience in the law, and we'll get to this in a minute, your acceptance by God is not contingent upon those things. Okay, God wants a relationship with you, and I think it's in the relationship when you get into a relationship with God and you understand how much you're loved, then you start to appreciate and understand what the laws are for and what obedience means and how it's beneficial. So that's why I think the father runs to his son, but that's not all he did. The father, who was recklessly, wildly generous, also receives the son. I want you to see how that played out because there are lessons there for us. And I'm going to read you two verses of Scripture, and I'm going to read them out of order. I'm going to read you what the, 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 the son said when he came home, and then I'm going to read to you what he rehearsed that he was going to say. Here's what he said in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now what we're told in verse 19 is that as he was rehearsing this speech that he was going to give his dad, he had another line that he was going to include. And this is that line. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's how this is supposed to end. He's supposed to say, please make me like one of your hired servants. And I, maybe he's thinking he can work off the debt. Maybe he's thinking that in working it off, he can work himself into a right relationship with his father again. See, in the pigsty, the son has rehearsed this speech, and he says, I'm going to give dad a speech, and I'm going to talk him into letting me come back into the house, and maybe I can work my way back. Now, earlier, I read those two verses to you out of order because I wanted you to see what the son intended to say and what he actually said. Why? And I only have one guess as to why he didn't get that second line out. 
like most of us, the, the son has it in his mind that he can undo what he did. He can make it right. I can work it off. I can fix it. He had lost the family inheritance, and so now he, he comes back, and he's going to serve as a slave and repay what he's lost. He has no idea what he has lost. See, this isn't about money. This has never been about money. This isn't about sexual exploits. It's never been about sexual exploits. This isn't about your divorce. It's never been about your divorce. It's about a relationship that God wants to have with you. That's what was lost where the son was concerned, a relationship, not an inheritance. And when the father recklessly embraces his boy, the son realizes my offense against my father is not money that I can pay back. My offense is that I have broken his heart. I've, I've completely severed the relationship. If, if this relationship is ever going to be restored or resolved, the father has to fix it. The son can't do it. And my guess is that is why the son is never able to finish his speech. He realizes how, how empty and how foolish it sounds to say, I will become your servant. I expect that there's somebody here today, right now, and you came to church and this is kind of what goes on in your mind. You're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, God, you, you had a conversation with God and you said, God, if you'll fix my life, I'll, I'll start going to church for the rest of my life. If you'll just fix this thing, I'll go to church for the rest of my life. Or maybe you made a deal with God and you said, God, if you'll get me out of this mess, I swear to you, I'll give you everything I got. I'll tithe. I'll do, I'll do everything. Just fix this problem for me. And I think that, that there, it's possible that across America today, churches are, are, have some people in them that that's what they've done. They've made a deal with God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that and I'll go to church. And that's probably, you know, for, I think for some, that's why they go to church. But here's the thing, it's not about money. It's not about obedience. Again, obedience is an important thing, but your acceptance by God does not depend on your obedience. That, is, that might be a revolutionary thought for some of you this morning. You are not going to work your way back into God's grace. You're not going to work your way back into a place where God's heart is healed over what you've done. What will do that is a relationship with him. I want to read you something from Deuteronomy chapter 21, and what I'm going to read is horrible. And you hear that and you think, Brett, you can't call the Bible horrible. You can't do that. Let me read it, and then you tell me, okay? Deuteronomy 21 verse 18, here's what it says. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, any takers this morning? We, we all, if you're a parent, you've had that at one time or another, right? If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, listen to what you're supposed to do. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Horrible, right? That's horrible. I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't know what, to, what you'll think of me after I say this, but I'm not too worried about it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think I would do this if God told me to do this. You? 
You're going to drag your rebellious son or daughter in front of a group of elders and say, stone them, kill them. They won't behave, they, 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 they won't straighten up, they're rebellious, just stone them. I don't know about you, but I'm not lining up to do that. Some of you right now might be in a situation where, as I'm talking about this, you just want to cry because your son or your daughter is in a season of life where they're just not getting it. You know, they just, they, they, they're rebellious, they're, they're hard-headed, they're not listening to anybody, they're making horrible choices, they're breaking people's hearts, they're, they're breaking people's bank accounts, I mean, you know, just the, the whole thing. And, and it, you, your heart breaks for your child, and they're rebelling. Can you imagine taking that child in front of the elders and saying, just stone them? I mean, you know, that's what God said, and I, I'm on board with that, so just, just kill them. Here's the question this morning. Why would God give a law he knows we won't keep? I mean, as far as I know, I'm, I'm sure that somebody probably did this back in the day, but we don't have any record of it. As far as I know, it's not recorded in Scripture. If it is, you can show me. But, but I, I, don't, I can't imagine that this is something that was done a lot because I can't imagine a father or a mother getting to that place. Maybe they did, but it's just hard for me to imagine. The question is, why would God give such a law? And here's, I think, the answer. God intended to keep his own law. God would kill his own son. Not a rebellious son. A righteous, sinless son. He sent his son to die in my place and in your place. That's really the story of the gospel. And as we go all the way back to Deuteronomy 21, we get a glimpse of the gospel even all the way back in Deuteronomy 21. What we would not do, God did for us. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating this, I'm just going to go ahead and read to you the next few verses that are there in Deuteronomy 21 that, that come right after what I just read to you. They're interesting. Listen to what comes after this. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is literally the story of Jesus. The day Jesus died, he is put on a cross. A righteous man named Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pontius Pilate, the governor, and he's, he says, Governor, we have a law. And he begins to recite to him this passage out of Deuteronomy 21. And he says, listen, according to our customs, we can't leave him on that cross. He's got to be brought down. He's got to be put uh, in, a, in a grave. And Pilate said, go ahead and do that. Pilate gave him permission. Deuteronomy 21 was not so much a law as it was a prophecy. And God knows that you're not going to keep it, so he did. Your father in heaven, with reckless extravagance, sent his son to die in your place. Within the parable itself is encoded the gospel. I would like for us, in the time we have left, and it won't take very long, to decode that message. I want to take you back to Luke 15, where Jesus is telling this story. And he says this, and the gospel is in what I'm about to read to you. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then you come to verse 23 and it says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. There are three elements here. There's a robe, there's a ring, and there are sandals. That's the gospel. The robe is Christ. Let me show you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. The robe is Christ. The ring is not decorative. It is not jewelry. It is a signet ring. It would have the crest of the family on it. And whoever had that ring had with it the authority of the one who gave the ring. So if my father gave me his signet ring, I could then document papers. I could, they would put wax seals on them, and I could imprint our family crest into the wax or the clay. And, and whoever saw that knew that by virtue of my having that ring, I carried with it the, the authenticity and the authority of my father and his signature. It was as if my father was signing the papers, not me. And so he's given a ring like that. And that's what God has given to you and me in the Holy Spirit. Listen to this in Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, that's the signet ring, the promised Holy Spirit. And then we come to the sandals. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's the gospel. The entire story of the gospel is embedded in this wonderful parable about the prodigal. I desperately want to communicate this message to the person who feels like they've just gone too far. They think they've just done too much. And Brett, you don't know what I've done. And if you knew, you wouldn't even want to talk to me. And here's what I want to tell you. You're welcome here. Nobody's going to judge you here. We're going to accept you. We're going to love you. You see, all of us here have been embraced by the Father. All of us in here knows what a pigsty smells like because we've had our own. We've had our own moment where we had to come to God and be accepted as the prodigal. So we're not going to treat you any differently than God has treated us. The point of the parable is to, not, is to just not, not be the older brother. It's not just to not be the younger brother. The, the, the point of the parable is to embrace others the way the father embraces the son. We began in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees are standing around, they're watching Jesus, all these kind of People of ill repute, these not great people are hanging out with Jesus. And the Pharisees are standing off and they're watching all that. And they notice that Jesus isn't chasing these people away. He kind of likes it that they're hanging around. He's, he's with them. And eventually they speak up and they say, Jesus, why do you, how dare you? How dare you hang out with people like that? And Jesus said, listen, it's not about who I am. It's about who God is. And he is recklessly extravagant. And that's our call as Christians. Here's a serious question for you this morning. What would it cost you to become like the Father? What would it cost you to find somebody who's far from God 
and to be the father for them and, and, and maybe tell them this story and help them to understand it maybe for the first time ever in their life? What would it cost you to sit down with somebody and share this story with them? In, in 1635, Rembrandt did a self-portrait, and this is the painting. This is a self-portrait. This is called The Prodigal in the Harlot's House. He was bragging about his wild living, his drinking, his spending. The woman on his lap is his wife, Saskia. One wonders what she thinks of the title of the painting, <laughs> Prodigal in the Harlot's House. Um, sure she had a different perspective than maybe Rembrandt did. The year he painted this, 1635, his son, Rubertus, died. Four years later, his daughter, Cornelia, died. Two years after that, Saskia died. Leaving Rembrandt alone with his toddler infant son. Rembrandt was a prodigal. He blew through all of his cash he was wildly popular and very wealthy. He lost his family. He lost his dignity. He lost his money. By the time he died, he had lost his eyesight. Thirty-five years later, Rembrandt painted another picture that scholars describe as his defining work. When he painted it, he could only see inches in front of his face. He could, he could barely see. You want to see the picture? You, you would find this picture uh, in, the, uh, in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. Russia, not Florida. Okay? <laughs> There's a huge picture. This picture's huge, and it hangs in the Hermitage Museum. You want to see it? Here's the picture. This is called The Return of the Prodigal. It is a masterpiece. It is considered one of the finest works of art in the world. One of the peculiar things about this painting is that the central figure, the father, is not centrally located in the frame. Because what Rembrandt is doing is he's contrasting the two brothers. You have there on the right the older brother who has stayed at home and done the right things and been righteous and hasn't misbehaved and hasn't rebelled, hasn't squandered wealth, and he stands erect and he looks down on his older brother. I'm better than you. How dare you? All the judgment, all the... the, the uh, vitriol, all of the, the hatred that, that comes off that older brother as he stares down at his younger brother, the prodigal, who, by contrast, is in tattered robes. He's at the end of his rope with no hope before his father, and he kneels before the father in repentance, and he's pleading with him, I will work as a slave. And the father will have none of that. No, no, you are going to be my son. His robes are threadbare. He is disheveled. The sandals on his feet, if you look closely, he has stepped out of the one on the left. And if you look at the one on the right, it's so worn that the heel is worn away. There's almost no heel. He has lost everything. And he is hanging on by a thread. 
But there's one interesting detail, and it's hard to see in this painting. And even if you were standing in front of it, you might not notice it. But if you could go to the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, and you could look at this, it's a rather large picture. And if you could look at it, what you would see is that around his waist is a rope. And inside the rope is tucked a dagger. And on the handle of the dagger are some gemstones that are embedded in the handle. He did not get that in the land far away. That came from his father. You see, here's the thing. There will always be a reminder of God's love for you. That's one of the things Rembrandt's trying to say. There will always be a reminder of God's love for you. If you look hard enough, you can see it. There's always some reminder. Maybe it's, it's a song that you, you hear and you're just reminded of something that, man, God loves me. Maybe it's, it's a, a verse that you've always thought that was beautiful and someone reads it or quotes it and you're reminded again just how much God loves you. Maybe it's a dream that you have, but God will always remind you, you are mine. Where you are right now is not your home. Your home is with me. You belong with me. The most majestic thing about this painting is the father himself. And Rembrandt did two things that are remarkable. Look at his hands. The right hand in Scripture is always considered the strong hand. And in this picture, it is the tender hand. The right hand has the strength, but the right hand is also tender. And the father... The hands of the Father match the feet of the Son. Where you are exposed, where you are undone, the strength of the Father in His tenderness, not in His law, but in His love, comes to you. God will put His strong hand on you and lift you up and raise you again to the position you were supposed to be to begin with. The hands of the Father in Rembrandt's painting are His own. He painted His hands onto the hands of the Father. So are the eyes. And it's hard to see in this painting, but if you were to be able to look at the actual painting, what you would see is that the Father has been painted. Rembrandt paints him blind. He looks past your past, and he looks to the future. Rembrandt put himself in this painting of the Father, and that's a pretty serious thing for us to consider this morning. Rembrandt got it right. It isn't enough not to be the prodigal. It isn't enough not to be the older brother. Your faith is determined by how much you look like the Father. And until your hands are on the back of someone who needs to come home because you're blind to their past and all you can see is a better future for them. Until you're helping someone come home, you really have not fulfilled this parable of Jesus. Your destiny is not to not be either son, but to become the father. Who do you know that needs Jesus? Who do you know that has maybe never heard this parable, and certainly not the way you've heard it today, and who do you know that needs to hear this? It's our job to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's our job to be the eyes of God to see who they really are. Now there's one thing that I left out in this story. And it's that part when I was reading to you about the ring and the robe and the sandals. It also said, he says, kill the fatted calf. That is Jesus. 
That fatted calf is Jesus. You say, Brady, you calling Jesus fat? No, that's not what I'm saying. The calf was fattened for a reason, right? It was going to, for a specific reason. That calf had been specially prepared and had been getting ready for that moment when he would be the feast for the family. And in the same way, God prepared Jesus. And what do I mean by that? I mean Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. He had been perfectly prepared to become the sacrifice that you and I could never be. And so in the story, when he says, hey, kill the fatted calf, you could translate that to the gospel and say, hey, put Jesus on the cross so that my son and my daughter can come home. I love that song we sang at the beginning today. You are the sons, you are the daughters of God. How is that possible? Because Jesus was willing to die on a cross to make that a reality. If you've never given your life to Christ, it's not about keeping the rules and making sure you obey everything. Do we want that to happen? Yes, but it's really not even about that. It's about entering into a relationship with a father who loves you so much that Jesus described him as lavish and reckless. And if you can enter into that relationship, all that other stuff will start to make sense to you eventually. We're going to have people down front to pray with you if you need prayer. If you'd like to talk to somebody about becoming a Christian, we'd love to have that conversation with you. I would love to talk to you about that. For the rest of you, I hope your week is just wonderful. I hope we have some decent weather. You can get outside and smile a little bit. We need that, don't we? Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for Jesus' incredible ability to tell a story. And this story is so rich. It's got such lessons for us. And Lord, you are portrayed so beautifully in it, as are we. In our need, in our lack of hope, in our completely disheveled spiritual state, we come and we kneel before the only one who is, is hope for us, and that is you. And here's what I know, God. You love us, you accept us, and your grace washes over us. May we know that, may we feel that in these moments. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus.